Father, we uh, thank you for your word. It guides and directs us. It is a light unto our path. It, it helps our feet to be firm and steadfast in all that we do for you. We would ask that you would establish us even more in your word and in your work that you have for us, which you have set before the foundations of the earth that we might fulfill. And Father, for all of those who did not have such a great Christmas, I pray that you bring comfort and emotional healing and contentment that is only found in you and help us to be those guiding lights in this year to come in 2022 in jesus name amen well when we left off paul and timothy gave thanks to the father because of the demonstration of the faith of the church or those people in the church at colossi uh, they had been taught the gospel by epaphras which caused them to grow and produce fruit and thanksgiving and prayers delivered to the Father was all because of Jesus, who he is and what he has done for everyone. And I thought it would be appropriate not to move on from this section, even though I covered it up to verse 18. I, I think we just need to focus on who Jesus is because that's one of the main points of this particular little letter is the preeminence of Christ, who he is and what he has done for us. I'm going to read verse 13 to verse 20, if you'll follow along. It says, For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to him all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So that, that is a treatise about Jesus Christ, who he is, and what he has done. Let me just kind of summarize that again for you. He saved us from the dominion of darkness and redeemed us. He brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. We have forgiveness of sins. He is above all things in authority. He is the image of God who is invisible. He is at the right, or excuse me, he has the right of a primogenitor, which I discussed a couple weeks ago. He is over everyone and everything. All rights are the firstborn, although he is not the firstborn human, belong to him. He created everything visible and invisible. There is no body, no one, I should say, or anything that takes preeminence over him. He actually holds everything in the universe together. He is the head of the church, and he is the firstborn from the dead, the first to be resurrected from the dead to glory. All of those things are encapsulated in verse, verses 13 through 20. And I wouldn't just go back through that list and kind of pick it apart a little bit, just kind of make it simple for us to understand. So the first one, and I have eight of these that I've categorized them into, uh, he has saved us from the dominion of darkness and redeemed us. Now, if you were from the planet Mars and you showed up here and somebody said the dominion of darkness, they would listen to that and go, what do you mean? Like the darkness of space, darkness inside of a room. What, what are you talking about? The dominion of darkness and he has redeemed us. He is using metaphoric language here. There's a metaphor of light and dark. It is not actual light that comes from a bulb or the sun or the moon, and it is not actual 
dark, like you would close yourself in a little enclosure and have no light in there. Light is made up of particles or waves that come from the sun. These little photons that come and they, they do experiments to see exactly what they are and they act like a particle sometimes and they act like a wave other times. And it, it's just when they discovered it, when I saw that experiment in chemistry, I was just in awe when the teacher was explaining it and they, they were able to separate those things. They had this little machine that did that. And it was just incredible to see how these little light particles move or these waves move. And a lack of these particles and waves leaves everything dark. So when you don't have the photons, it's completely dark. Now, the dominion of darkness is not referring to the lack of light created by the sun. He's not talking about the light that comes from candles or light bulbs or LED flashlights. Paul is not referring to any sort of physical light. Now, you can't really grab light, but what I'm talking about when I say physical light, physical light that we have produced, either from the sun or something that we have made, like a candle or a light bulb. Now, I believe he is referring to a twofold darkness in verse 21. There is the spiritual darkness, and then there is the darkness of our understanding. So there's a spiritual darkness. There's a kingdom or a power or an authority of darkness. There is a ruler over this kingdom. He is Satan. He has rules in his kingdom. The primary one is do not love God. And then he blinds people to what is the truth about God, who he is and what he has done and what he will do. Second Corinthians 4.4 4 says this, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So it's almost as if he put puts blinders on if you've ever been on a plane they give you those uh, sometimes they give you those things you put over your eyes you know and you you can kind of sleep kind of not on a plane I, I have a couple of those and when you put them on it's mostly dark except for the little light that creeps in on the bottom and satan comes along and he does that he goes let me put this on you this is going to help you and we think it helps us if we're in the world but it doesn't help us whatsoever and so he blinds unbelievers they cannot see at all just as a blind person cannot see any light the person who dwells in the dominion of darkness cannot see the light of god it is impossible i remember one bible lesson when I was very young, I was probably four years old. Only Bible lesson I remember when my mom took us to church when we were really young. Uh, we stopped going when I was still really young, but I remember this. And we went into this little room, and the room was probably five feet, maybe six feet by about ten feet. All the boys that were in there, there was probably five or six of us. We all had our little coats on and our bro cream and our... Uh, you know, little leather shoes that we had on. We were well behaved. And we sat down and the teacher that was in there, he was going to tell us a story. And the story was about blind Bartimaeus. And as we were sitting there, he gave us this task to close our eyes and try to write like our name. And that's all I remember from it, just blind Bartimaeus and that was it. And he wanted to explain to us the story of blind Bartimaeus. Well, we couldn't see what we were doing on the paper, and it didn't turn out too well. You know, being real young, it didn't turn out so well. Well, the same thing happens with those who are in this dominion of darkness. 
they cannot understand. They maybe get glimpses every once in a while, but they cannot understand who God is. First John 1 John 1.5 says, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And that light refers to certainly light that you can see, but also it's the understanding. He has all knowledge and all understanding and all wisdom. That is the light of God. These people who are in darkness, they lack any ability to get true understanding concerning God. When someone who knows God tries to bring them understanding of concerning God uh, to someone who is in darkness, they cannot accept it, understand it, or apprehend it. They cannot apprehend that knowledge. And what that means to apprehend, imagine a pitcher is throwing a ball and the person behind the plate, the catcher, he's ready to catch. That's what's apprehending. He catches that ball. People who are in darkness cannot do that. They cannot catch the ball. A lot of times I've used that same metaphor. When the ball is thrown at them, it only causes them pain and they don't catch it. They don't understand what it's all about. Because for all of us, when we read the scripture or we hear what the scripture has to say, it says we are sinners. We are under judgment. We are going to go to hell if we remain there. That's that baseball, the fastball coming at us, hits us. And if we can't receive it, like with the mitt, then we are completely without understanding. Now, there are some who are under the dominion of darkness that might claim to get it, but they will never accept it because they prefer evil or darkness instead of the light of the understanding of God. Lots of people like this out there where you'll give them the gospel and they say, I don't care if it's true. I don't want it. And I'm going to actually oppose you in spreading the truth. You know where this is happening. It's all around the world, whether it's China or Burma or the United States. You know, the, you uh, can't give the gospel out freely if, like in an abortion clinic out in front because they will take you and say, you've got to stand farther away. They don't want you speaking. Pretty soon, I think, the YouTube and the rest of them will probably start deleting pastoral messages, especially if it goes against the narrative that the media and those who are in charge, they hold to. And that is there's sexual freedom for everyone, and nobody should come along with hate speech and condemn any of that or simply talk about the Word of God. This is already happening in Canada. You can't say what you want in Canada, and there's persecution of pastors up there and the Christians. Romans chapter 1 verse 18 also says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them so they understand or they get the basic concept of who God is and they say I want nothing to do with it and they are going to remain wicked and encourage others in that wickedness like right now you know we know understand from scripture that sexual immorality is wickedness and the LGBT T, Q, R, S, T, U, V, W, X, Y, Z community is trying to incorporate that into the curriculum in all elementary schools. If a child is in a public educational system, 
They will be exposed to that, and they're trying to recruit them, trying to confuse their gender, trying to confuse their sexuality, and that is no place for that, I believe, according to Scripture, and we need to stand up against that. But the world will say, how dare you, bigoted, narrow-minded, hateful person that you are to try to restrict this, to try to keep that person from becoming who they're supposed to be. And parents buy into this, and they start clothing their kids and the... Um, attire of the opposite sex and they treat them as if they are part of the opposite sex and God would not have that. Just as you've heard me say before, as David told Solomon, be a man. You were born a man, be a man. And for women, God encourages the women to be women, not to be like men. And it's referring to that in the Old Testament that a the woman is not to be found in the attire of a man or a man in the attire of a woman. It's not just referring to clothing. It's referring to the attitude and the behaviors and the beliefs and the mores of that individual. And God promises to give us as much understanding about him as a person wishes to seek out. So if somebody is in darkness and they get this inkling, like, I want to know more about God. And they search after God. He promises to meet them and tell them about himself. First Chronicles 28, 9 says, if you seek him, he will be found by you. Second Chronicles 15, 2, the Lord is with you when you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. In Jeremiah 29, 13, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And, and so if you say, God, I want to know you more. We used to sing that song. I want to know you more. And if you do and you reach out to him, he goes, okay, I'm going to reveal myself to you. And he does that through people and through the word and whatever the people say must match the word. There are so many, I was talking to my daughters about this the other day and they live in North County and one lives in Florida and, and they were saying, trying to find a church that just teaches the Bible just goes through the Bible and they don't have a bunch of weird stuff. My daughter and my granddaughter went to a, a church recently and they were just kind of freaked out. They took a big church and they went into it and all these things were going on. Like, and my granddaughter first picked up on it like, this is weird. This is really weird. And my, my daughter turned to my granddaughter and they'd kind of look at each other like, what is going on in this church? And, and so there are all kinds of churches out there, but they don't seek to know who God truly is, what his will is, both for now and in the future. And they just turn away with that and they go with whatever feels good, just do it inside the churches. And even God dictates to us how we're supposed to worship him. We can't just make it up on the fly and say, well, we're going to worship him this way. No, like, for instance, if you wanted to commit a child sacrifice in order to worship God, God says, absolutely not. You are crazy and you're condemned if you do that. Don't be doing that. But the world and the church, it just kind of mellows out and does what it wants if it's not actively seeking after God with all their heart. And the people who go to those churches, they don't seek after, not all of them, there's some that do, but they don't seek after God with all their heart to know what the truth is or be able to understand what the truth is. And that's because the shepherds are not leading them in that path. You know, it's just my belief. I know a pastor who took the book of Revelation and condensed it down into seven messages. And ultimately it was about church growth and church planting. And I thought to myself, that's not what the book of Revelation is about. 
people will take subjects, pastors will take subjects, and they'll just push them into Scripture. Just, just like taking a nail and pounding it into a piece of wood to make it fit in there. If it bends, just straighten it out and stick it in there a little harder, and, and you'll get your message across. And that's not what the Scripture says. Like right here, I'm focusing on Christ and who he is and getting to know him by how he has been revealed to us in Scripture. So that's the first one. The second one is... He has brought us into a kingdom of the son he loves. So there are only two kingdoms that we are aware of. They are described in a couple of different ways. There is the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. There is the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of the sun. There is the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of heaven. There is the kingdom of the air and the kingdom of God. So Satan's dominion is the air, the, the atmosphere, this earth. That's his dominion. Where's God's dominion? Everywhere. Even beyond the universe. Whatever is out there beyond the universe. If you talk to a physicist, he'll say there's nothing out there beyond the universe that's expanding. And it's just a mind bender out there. But that's what the kingdoms are described as. Now, we must be born into either kingdom. We are born physically. Into this kingdom, the kingdom of the air. Satan is the king of this world, the prince and power of the air. And if you want to be into the, uh, excuse me, incorporated into the other kingdom, the spiritual kingdom, you have to be born into that kingdom as well. That's why John was talking, or excuse me, Jesus was talking in the Gospel of John to Nicodemus. He says, you have to be born again, or properly translated, born from above. So we're born here on this earth, and you have to be born into the kingdom. You have to gain spiritual life. So there's the kingdom of Satan, which has a physical birth. Everyone who has ever existed, with the exception of Adam and Eve, have been born into this kingdom. Adam and Eve existed before Satan's kingdom was set up. Adam and Eve were assigned, or they were banished, to this same kingdom, the kingdom of darkness. And we have to, again, be birthed into the kingdom or we are at birth into the kingdom involuntarily. Did anybody sign up to be born? I, I didn't say, oh, I'm up, my number, number 6,323. We didn't do that. We just came into existence. God says, you're going to exist, and boom, you existed. That's, you didn't have a choice in it. But you do have a choice in the kingdom of come, the kingdom to come. Now, the occupants of this kingdom are all those who do wrong. That's... I'm going to give you a list. Murderers, adulterers, thieves, blasphemers, liars, gossip, greedy, sexual immoral, drunkards, drug abusers, idolaters, swindlers, those who are envious and jealous, and those who reject Jesus. That's the umbrella over all of that. But all of us fit into these categories in one way or another. We've all committed these sins. All of us have done wrong in some way. We are all in this kingdom. We can get a ticket to get out of this kingdom. I'm using the ticket in a metaphorical sense. We're not going to pass them out after service where you can get into heaven. But it's this idea that you have the ability to get out of this kingdom and get into the next kingdom. And your reservation has already been made. It's like uh, you want to go to a steakhouse or something. You have to call up or on the internet. You have to put your name down. You put your information in there. And and then when you arrive, you tell them. And then they go ahead and they send you a text. And your table is ready. They don't use a lot of those little pager things anymore. They just send you a, a text. And you go in. And so before you go in, all this preparatory work is done. 
You, you put in your reservation. Well, if you want to go to the spiritual kingdom, the kingdom of God, you have to put in your reservation. You don't immediately get to go. It, it takes a little time for us to be prepared. It's not that God has to prepare anything. It's already set to go. He's been working on that place over 2,000 years. And, and now for us, it's just like, okay, I'm waiting for my number to be called, my ticket to be valid, validated, and I'm going. And we look forward to it as believers like that. So that's the kingdom of Satan. But the kingdom of God, you have to have the spiritual birth, John chapter 3. And also, it is populated with those who have chosen to be born into the kingdom. You have to say, I'm going to be there. Birth into this kingdom is only voluntary. Nobody is forced. You will go to heaven and you will do it right now, mister. It doesn't happen like that. Nobody is forced or dragged into the kingdom of God. You have to make the request in order to get in. Now, like I said, the birth cannot and never will be forced. The occupants of this kingdom are all of those who believe in and have accepted the forgiveness of God. You notice haven't done anything. They just believe. That's the only requirement. That's what gives you the ticket. Confess with your mouth, believe in your heart. That's it. And God says, okay, you're able to come into the kingdom. Now, who is there? I described who's in the kingdom of darkness. Who's in the kingdom of God? Well, I can name everybody in the Bible, but I'll just name a few. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Naomi, Ruth, Elijah, Elisha, King David, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jomon, Micah, Nahum, Hagbacuk, Zachariah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, John the Baptist, Peter, James, John, George, and Ringo. Well, those, those last two aren't there. I, I, well, they may be, but I, I, well, Ringo's still alive, so he's definitely not there. But you get the idea of who is there, and all of you who have trusted in Jesus, to be saved from your sins, you were also seated in the heavenly realms with Christ Jesus. He considers you already there. Well, how is that possible? I have no idea how that's possible, but we are in his kingdom. We are already citizens there. Our physical bodies just have not been transformed to allow us to enter in. How do they get transformed? Of course, you guys know we die, then we get resurrected, or we get raptured. One of the two is going to happen, and we're going to be in that kingdom. So we're just hanging out. We're just waiting. We're at the bus stop. Patty and I, um, last year or the year before, we went on a trip down to Cozumel, and I rented a little moto. And we were on this moto, and we had our helmets, and we're just, oh, this is so zing, 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 going around the island, you know, just having a, a great little time there. And we got to this one point, and it's just like forest and rain. It starts to rain. And, well, what are we going to do now? Riding the rain? You know, pelting in the face with the rain. We found this little, like, bus stop pulled the little moto in there and we just sat there we're waiting we're waiting for the rain to pass we're waiting for the rain of the enemy to pass and then we can get on your moto and you can head to heaven at that point and of course i'm speaking metaphorically it's of the death here that we experience we immediately go to be with the presence of god and we are all occupants of the first kingdom of Satan, but only those who have followed the way of faith are in the kingdom of God. Those who believe in Jesus, that he is Lord, and confess him as such, those are the people who are in heaven. And by comparison, there are only a few that are in the kingdom of God as opposed to the kingdom of Satan. Now, over the eons of time, 
the thousands of years that we have existed. Some people estimate that before the flood, there were several hundred million at minimum, maybe even a few billion uh, at the most. And right now, I think we're approaching 8 billion people. But that's not a static number. If you go back, you know, a whole generation, well, there were billions of people existing then too, as well as now, and very few of the people who exist now existed in the past generation. So there's multiple billions over the generations that we have. How many multiple billions? I I don't know, but it's billions. Billions and billions of people have existed. And if the Lord tarries, billions more are going to exist as well. How many go to heaven in relation to those multiple billions of people? Probably hundreds of millions. It's very small. I've told you before about the parables of the kingdom and the parable of the sower of the seed listed in Matthew, I believe it's chapter 13. And the comparison of the different types of soils that are there, only 25% of the people would go if you make that comparison. So 25% of the billions of people, well, there may be billions up there, but it's going to be small in comparison to the number of people that have existed because most do not want to go. Most are satisfied with the wickedness. They don't want to understand God. They're content to remain in the darkness. So thirdly, we have forgiveness of sins. Now, what are sins? I I thought it was very appropriate reading the... uh, little thing that I wrote up on the screen, the food for thought. It's failure to do what God has commanded either by intent or omission, which means you didn't do something God wanted you to do because you chose not to do it, or you didn't do something God wanted you to do because you did want to do it. You know, that type of thing. It's like both. There's the intent, I'm going to sin, And then there's the non-intent. Well, it's still intent, but I'm not going to do what he wants to. I'm either going to sin or I'm not going to do what he wants me to do. You can relate this to children. Clean up your room. Yes, father. And they go and they clean up the room. Or clean up your room. No, father. I'm not going to do it. They say they will, but they don't do it. That's the sin of omission, so to speak. You're not honoring your mother and father by not cleaning your room if you're young. Now, all of us were in here that's in here were perfect. We always cleaned our room and and it's all good. But you get the idea. You get the idea that you either sin against God because you willfully just determined you're going to do it, or you just say, eh, I'll get maybe I'll get to it. But yeah, I, I used to employ a bunch of guys from Mexico and they'd come up and I'd ask them to give them something to do. And sometimes they'd turn to me and they'd say, Manana. <laughs> Manana means Never, you know, it's like they're not going to do it. And I say, okay, okay, you know, they have to deal with that. But th- this is what we're dealing with here is the forgiveness of sins. We have the forgiveness of sins. Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 through 40 says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. We don't even have to go to the Ten Commandments and the Old Testament law to figure out what we're supposed to do. We just say, is this loving to God, and is this loving to my neighbor? And if you say no on either account, you have sinned. Like, for instance, have you ever failed to pray? Oh, guilty. I'm sure you are too. 
sinned against God because it's not loving to God. And it's also not loving to my neighbor who I haven't prayed for. So we are all guilty of failing at these two commandments. And have you ever failed to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? You know, I I powered down some calories yesterday with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. But have I loved God like that constantly throughout my entire Christian existence? No, I haven't. Because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Have you ever failed to love your neighbor as yourself? I'm so guilty of this, of not loving them. You know, in our cul-de-sac, a couple of us have a tradition where we pass out something to the other neighbors. And maybe you have that same thing. One neighbor passes out soaps. You know, we get this soap and, oh, wonderful, Patty loves this soap. And, you know, we wash it up. And we have a tradition where we give out the cookies. And they go, oh, cookies, you know, and they eat the cookies and they get the more calories just like we do. And, and it's, it's wonderful. We have that type of tradition. But there are things that we should do for our neighbors that we don't do. Ever have a dispute about where to park on the street because it might block your neighbor's house? You know, just little stuff like that. We're not loving our neighbors. We're not sacrificing for our neighbors. Let me give you something that is a little more stark, a little more in your face. How about this example of the supply chain, you know, that we have? Their, Their way of solving the supply chain of everything coming in. By the way, I was also told this. Starbucks, they're out of mocha, and they don't know when they're going to get it in. (laughs) No mochas. You can have white mocha and pay more, but the supply chain is down, apparently, for Starbucks and the mochas. And, well, what if the supply chain goes down even more? Now, the way the government has solved this problem is don't keep the ships too close to shore where you can photograph them. Keep them at least 40 miles out where it's beyond the horizon where you can't see them. And there are dozens and dozens, actually hundreds of ships, container ships, which are out there and the ports are still packed, which are there. And that's all because of the government management. Of course, we know they're great at everything. And and because that is taking place, what if the supply chain just gets even worse? I mean, really bad. Not just toilet paper and paper towels, but we're missing staples where the trucks don't move even the food from the farms or the bottled water or whatever, or the chlorine and the additives that they use in the city water supply or the county water supply. What if it just goes down and the basic things that we need for survival are not here? Now, this is certainly a hypothetical, at least now it is. In the tribulation, this will not be a hypothetical. But say it goes down and you have a store of food. And it's in your house, and it's for you, and it's for your children, and it's for your grandchildren. And, of course, anarchy would be reigning under a case like this. Well, what if some gang showed up to your neighborhood with guns, and you had guns, and they want your food? Are you going to surrender your food, or would you commit acts of violence even to the point of killing people to keep them from getting your food? You know, when you read Scripture... I struggle with things. I think about things like this. John 15 verse 13 says, Greater love has no man than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. Well, you could say, they're not my friends. They're my enemies. 
Well, Jesus died for his enemies. Well, what about this one? Luke 20, excuse me, Luke 9, 24. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. So you give your food away to somebody else, even though they're wicked and they will survive, and it's going to affect you, your family, your children, your grandchildren. Would you do that? Is that what God would require of us? Or would you use lethal force to stop them? In the tribulation, that is going to happen, I promise you. And those people who get saved during the tribulation will have to make the choice. It has always been my contention if for some reason, you know, I wasn't saved and I went into the tribulation and I, I knew what I know now, uh, would I take the mark of the beast? Would I just surrender? What would I do? I, I would show up, say, I ain't taking it. Take off my head because that's Revelation chapter 20 verse 4. It says those who do not take the vaccine card will, uh, excuse me, the mark of the beast will not be able to buy or sell. Uh, just like now. And by, by the way, that is ha- I see memes about this now. Uh, it, uh, there's movie memes that show up and, and somebody says you can't go and, unless you have a, quote, multipass. But the multipass is the vaccine card. You cannot buy or sell unless you have the vaccine card. You cannot go to a restaurant. You n- cannot go to a movie. You cannot go to a gym. You can't even get into a hospital to be treated if you don't have the vaccine. And people are dying as a result of this. And it's being allowed to be perpetrated. There's a group of individuals that are orchestrating this, trying to get rid of your freedoms. I I can just about promise, if I were a prophet, I would say this, but I'm not a prophet, and I'm I'm just, just reading the tea leaves, so to speak, and I'm not an astrologer, but you get the idea. In this state of California, do you think the restrictions are going to become worse or better after this year? They're gonna get worse. You know, they, they keep on bandying about you cannot fly domestically unless you have a vaccine. They're, they keep on throwing it out there to see what kind of reaction they're going to get. And half the states, they're going, we ain't doing it. I don't care what you say. And it's just kind of failing. And, and I've been reading up on the economic stuff that's going uh, on out there, especially with the Fed and what they're going to do. And, and there's some that are saying, well, they're planning on having an economic meltdown. They've been doing the QE1 and QE2 and giving money to the stock market and inflating the stock market. And they're saying, you know, in about six months, they're going to stop doing all of that. They're not going to give any money anymore to the stock market. They're going to stop giving 10 to $15 billion a month to the stock market, which will drive down the price of stocks. But if you go to CNN, NBC, Reuters, CBS, uh, if you go to those places, don't worry, don't panic about this. I don't trust them as far as I could throw them. And, and what's going, are they really going to do this? They call it tapering down. Is that what they're going to do? Reduce the price of the stocks because there's a big bubble on there? Is the wealth of the nation going to go down? It would be the perfect scenario that would benefit the feds and the other world banks which are out there. And they don't give a rip about the populace. They want control. Could that happen? Yes. Is it going to happen? I have no idea. Are restrictions going to be more severe in the future? I believe that they are. That's what's going to take place. And so as far as you sacrificing, if it gets real bad... What are you going to do? How are you going to love your neighbor? How are you going to love your friends? Are are you going to do it the way the Lord says to do it? Or are you going to say, that's it, I'm a prepper. I've dug my hole, I have my supplies, and I've got my long guns, and I'm 
I'm ready to go. Is that the type of thing we're going to do if we exist here before the rapture takes place? Is it going to get worse? Well, I think it's going to get worse, but I don't know how far. We just have to always be of the mental attitude, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. If you hold on to those two things, you know that you have been forgiven of your sins. And God wants to do a great work in you. Then there's fourth, he is above all things in authority. He has the right of primogenitor. He is over everyone and everything. All the rights of the firstborn, although he is not the firstborn human, belong to him. There is nobody or anything else that takes preeminence over him. And he is the firstborn from the dead and the first to be resurrected from the dead to glory. Now, what this is referring to, the primogenitor, that is the right of the firstborn son. He gets doubled the blessing from the father and the rest is split between the rest of the kids in the family. It means he has the first place in the family after the death of the father. So the firstborn son always had this right and he is the firstborn of our heavenly father here on earth. He is the father that Mary was overshadowed by the Holy Spirit and Jesus was born. He is 100% human, but he is also 100% God. Now, going on with this, Jesus possesses the position of authority over all humanity, the family of the human race. He is over all of us. He is in the place, like I said, a primogenitor over the entire human race. In the family of human beings, he is the highest in authority. Now, if you look at our country, the way we exist here, we have the local jurisdictions. We have the county water authority, you know, we, whether it's Padre or Helix, you have the, the right-of-way stuff that is out here. You have, if you've ever gone down to the county, they dictate what's going on. We have a project starting by our house, and the county came out and said, you will do this, 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 and this. And they spelled out everything, and you could see the contractors just going listening to these guys that are out there. And then over them, the mayor and the city council and the the county board of supervisors, and then over them, you have the governor. And over the governor, you have the House and the Senate and the judiciary and the president. And the president is the ultimate, but he shares power equally with the Congress and with the judiciary. There's not one person, even though that one person would like to be a dictator, the other two branches of government keep him in check. It's a really exceptional type of governmental system that was never tried ever before in the history of the world. And so that's our hierarchy. Now, the government is coming in as one unit and saying, we will rule over you and you will submit. Where in our country, we are the kings and we elect them to do our will. That's the way it's supposed to work. A representative uh, government, a republic is what we have. But Jesus is over all of that. And not just this country, but all the countries and all the rulers and all the tyrants and all the presidents and all the people who think there's something in authority, Jesus is over them. They are going to be responsible to answer to Jesus for everything that they have done. Now, this is true even in our world in daily life. There is a hierarchical or a matriarchal system. But in when it comes to categorizing life, there's this thing called taxonomy. 
In taxonomy, you have the kingdom, the phylum, the class, the order, the family, the genus, and the species, all these different things. I remember doing this in school where you would separate the gametophytes from the sporophytes and you would separate the monocots from the dicots and they'd give us this book and this is how you determine what a plant is and where it falls and which family. And it's just kind of interesting stuff. Well, the same thing exists for us as well in the kingdom of God. Who's the ultimate? It's Jesus. Who's next? You start to think, well, you know, by the book talks about the four living creatures. Jesus is there. Then you have the four living creatures. Then who do you have? You have the 24 elders, which are there. Then what do you have? You have the kingdom of priests. Who's that? You guys. You guys are the kingdom of priests. Who are you going to judge? Angels. Angels are under that. Well, who's under that? I have no idea. And it, it seems to be that there's a hierarchy which is there. And so even the 24 out, uh, elders, they bow down before Jesus and lay their crowns before him. But you got the four living creatures going back and forth, just kind of a bizarre setting in the book of Revelation and back in uh, the Old Testament as well. You're just going, what is going on with all this? But there seems to be this hierarchy of individuals that are there. And Revelation 19 verse 4 says, 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne. And so we have Jesus as the supreme, the one who is the apex, the highest pinnacle, the ultimate in authority, the summit, the zenith, the head, the top, the supreme, the greatest, the best. He's the one that is up there. So if anybody wants to say, who's the final authority? It's Jesus Christ himself. Now, going on, number five, he is the image of God who is invisible. If God who is invisible and unknowable in our world here, how do you get to know him? Well, he can deliver a word to us through people, and he did that. And we know that in these prepositional statements about God, God is love, God is peace, God is just, God is pure, God is light, God is omniscient, God is omnipresent, God is omnipotent. But that is fragmented, so to speak. It was Picasso who got a hold of this. That's why he painted an eye here and an ear here and a foot up here, you know, that type of thing. It's because, well, that doesn't fully explain who God is. He's much more than the sum of all those parts you stick together. We just don't have an understanding of that and who he is. Jesus is all of those things, and he's much more, but these are the little bites that we have to help us understand who God is. Jesus is that exact representation of the being of God. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says, The Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his power. Did not um, Jesus get told him, hey, show us the Father. What do you mean, show us? Who are you looking at? It, he was saying, hey, hey, you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He is the exact representation of God. And he created everything, both visible and invisible. That is number six. From the smallest quarks and neutrinos, if you know anything like the atom smashers that they have, Lucerne, they, they take these particles and they run them through this accelerator. I think it's 11 miles around, something like that, a big round thing. And they speed them up by electromagnetism and they crash them into each other, these little tiny particles. And they're able to trace what they do. And there's all these building blocks inside of these atoms uh, inside of the electrons, inside of the protons and neutrons, and these little tiny things. These are 
quarks and neutrinos is what they're called. And then you can go to the largest galaxies. Jesus created them, all of them. And you're going, no way. The smallest to, yeah, he did that. And from the most beautiful angels to the lowest, lowliest of organisms, Jesus created them as well. So you can go all the way to heaven. He created everything in heaven, which we cannot see, and everything on earth, which we can't see even under a microscope. He created all of those things. Hundreds, like inside the human cell, I really like Dr. Stephen Meyer of the Discovery Institute. He is a microbiologist. He has a PhD in that, and he's talking about the signature of the cell, how there's information in the cell, in the DNA, and he talks about what's going on inside the cell. If You know, when I went to... uh, take biology there was chloroplast and there's mitochondria and all these things in the cell and then they just kind of grayed out everything else in the cell there are thousands and thousands of functions in one cell and if you've seen pictures inside the cell of all the different things that are in there you're going who does this stuff who makes these things like this jesus did that he made those cells, and that is the building block of light, that what is in those cells, and getting all the materials together to make those cells, and then have those cells be alive. It's, who does? Well, it just happened. You had this primordial ooze get together, struck by lightning, and all of a sudden, life came. Now, it didn't happen like that. Jesus was the one who created. You know, it's one thing. To build a skyscraper, a dam, a space station, or a computer, try to build an entire planet with a self-sustaining ecosystem that is in, that is in place in an orbit with other planets around a star that flows on the wing of a spiral galaxy that contains more stars than can be counted in a universe with galaxies that are too numerous to be counted, that move in space that is too large to fathom and keep it all in order with no glitches. That's what Jesus did. How smart do you have to be? infinitely smart how powerful do you have to be infinitely powerful and does he know what's going on in the farthest reaches of the universe absolutely he does he's there and so omniscience omnipresence um, you know all of those things that's who jesus is and then seventh he actually holds everything together in the universe now i i saw this a couple of weeks ago have you ever heard the phrase dark matter Now, you've heard it, but I don't know if you understand what it is. What happened back in the 30s, this guy named Fritz Zwicky. Fritz Zwicky. Say that three times real fast. Fritz, he, he said, you know, I'm looking at these galaxies, and the way that they spin and the way that they hold together, there's not enough visible mass to keep them together. They should just fly away and spin away, but the gravity is what holds them together. But there's not enough mass to hold these galaxies together. And so he goes, I know, there must be something out there I can't see and can't detect that holds them together. And we're going to call it dark matter. So they just made up something. There's something out there. I don't know what it is, but it holds these things together, and it's dark matter. And then symposiums are held on this, and they write papers about it. Dark matter, what is it? I have no idea, but it, it's there. It's got to be there. We've got to discover it. <clears throat> and so the problem that the astronomers and the astrophysicists have had is they cannot figure this out. It just came out that they have some way to measure if it's there or not. And they're going, it's not there. And they say, go back and look again. They went back and looked again. It's not there. 
they can't figure out how the galaxies stay together because there's not enough mass to hold them together. They're still trying to figure it out. And so, you know, it may be a little sophomoric to the scientist, but Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says, sustaining all things by his powerful word. What's his word? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ holds everything together. Colossians 1.17, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. When I was in chemistry, I, you know, we talk about the atom. What's going on in the atom? You had the nucleus, and then you had the electrons going around it. And they should, those electrons should just fly away because opposites attract, and, and, and they, the, the electron and the nucleus, they are not opposite, they're alike. There's a positive and negative in the nucleus, and so that electron should just fly away. But it doesn't. It just kind of hovers around there. And depending on how many electrons you have, it depends on what element you have like oxygen and hydrogen. Hydrogen has one little electron going around it like this, around the nucleus. And if you get to gold, you have several of them just going everywhere. Nuclear uh, material, you have tons of them just flying around. And there's a chart that shows all that. Well, how are they stuck together? In chemistry, when we had chemistry, they said, well, we don't know. And they called it nuclear glue. They just made up something. How do these things stay together? Jesus is the one that keeps them together. Now, not only this, but I like diving into these things sometimes. I really love astronomy and physics, and so I'll I'll listen to physicists on YouTube, and I don't understand half of it, but I just go, that's really cool. It's hard to understand, like quantum physics. Quantum physics, they said, if you understand it, it blows your mind. You just, it's incredible. These little particles that are out there that you can't see that make up the universe, these particles can come into existence out of nothing. And then they can disappear and appear somewhere else in the universe right after that. It's like that zip, woo, over here. Zip, woo, there. And, and they just do that. And then if you look at them while they're doing that, this is what they do. Oh, he's looking at me. I need to act different. That's what happens to these particles. If you observe them, they change their behavior. And these scientists are going, I don't, I can't explain it, but it's like they know we're looking at them. These little tiny particles, that's quantum physics. And if you listen to these physicists talk about it, they go, oh, it's just wonderful. You know, but they don't understand what's going on. Jesus holds those electrons in there. He places these little particles around the universe wherever he wants them to be. And it is just incredible. And Jesus did all of that. And finally, well, wait, before I go on, you know, there's this move to go to Mars. And maybe some of the moons around Saturn, you know, there's one that's just frozen solid, probably a couple miles of ice, but we could drill through that to get to the liquid ocean to find life down there. Maybe we could live there. And they're really excited about going to these other moons. Let me tell you, you go there, you're going to die. That's just the way it goes. I, I saw this one picture. It was a block of aluminum, one foot thick, and it was about two or three feet high. And there was a small piece of plastic about one half inch in size traveling at 25,000 miles an hour, and it hit that block of aluminum. It looked like a howitzer 
had hit this aluminum. It flayed out and there was a crater in this block of aluminum. You start traveling through space at 25,000 miles an hour and you hit something else that's traveling at 25,000 miles an hour, you're dead. And it could be the size of a pea and it could kill you. And they think they're going to travel around the solar system and not hit any of that. You know, beyond Mars is the asteroid belt. How many asteroids do you think are out there? There's hundreds of thousands of them out there. How many small ones? And they're just out there tootling around. You think you're going to go through that stuff and get beyond the moons or to the moons of Saturn? No way. You know, they, they're looking at these other planets. This, did you see the James Webb uh, telescope? It got launched. You know how much it cost? $10 billion. And I was waiting to see, is this thing going to blow up on the launch pad? $10 billion down the tube? And they're setting it out there in L2 that's beyond the, the moon, which is out there, and it's going to be in a stationary orbit, and it's actually going to orbit the sun, not the Earth like the Hubble telescope. And it's going to be on the other side of the uh, Earth. And it's going to be out there a million miles. And it's going to take pictures of the universe. And they go, we're so excited. We can see to 100 million years after the creation of the universe. And they want to look at these exoplanets. And they'll be able to determine what kind of atmospheres on these exoplanets. Because we might be able to go there someday. No way. Do you know how long it takes to travel with our current technology? One light year? One light year. Takes 38,200 years. That's longer than the existence of humanity. And you're going to travel one light year, 38,200 years. And they're thinking it's going to happen to these other planets. God said, no, ain't happening, not going anywhere. I ruined Venus, taken away the atmosphere from Mars. You're stuck on this planet, and I'm going to finish it down there. No one is going anywhere, and I'm going to destroy the whole thing at the end. That, that's how God set it up. Jesus did all of that. And he is the one who is in control. And so you look at the universe, you can see him out there. Romans talks about how great he is. And then there is, I got three minutes, Jesus who is the head of the church. He is our Lord and Savior. He is God. He has saved us. And that salvation is, there's no other word to describe it except for glorious. And he bought us with the price of his own blood and he will sustain us forever. When we contemplate who Jesus is and what he has done, it will move you to awe. If you just meditate on who Jesus is, he's preeminent. He's over everything. And I haven't even gotten into the description of what he looks like in heaven and what he's going to be like and what we're going to be like in his presence and what that heavenly realm is going to uh, represent for us. And Jesus is loving, he's forgiving, he's all-powerful. But I think that one of the many words that can encapsulate who Jesus is is he is incredible. If you just meditate on who he is, and I would invite you to do that this next week. Meditate on who Jesus is and what he has done and give him thanks for the gift of life and what he will do for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for revealing to us your son in all his magnificence. He is the word of God that spoke into existence all that is. He is in charge. He is the apex. He is the I am. And we bow, if not physically, in our hearts to his lordship. And we ask that you would help us, Lord, to communicate to a lost and dying world who your son is. Father, give us wisdom in this. 
Give us the right opportunities. And may we be a blessing to you in our efforts. Empower us, we pray in Jesus' name. And the church said, please stand.